Uh, the first one is, do you know where your second lesson is? If you haven't found your second book of, of lessons, you need to start looking for them now because we're going to need them very soon. Can you believe we're almost done with the first week in December already? Hey, Carolyn. Christmas is going to be here before we know it, so you need to find that that safe place where you put those notes at the beginning of the year. They're right there. You just have to remember where you put them. Also, um, I don't know if you know or realize that um, Northside Baptist has a food pantry located here. You may have seen the sign when you drive in and out over here, but um, we thought that maybe um, we could help them fill their food pantry. And I know the, the children's uh, classes have been doing this, but we thought, well, let's offer it to, for, to you as the women. If you would, if you have some extra uh, cans of food or things to stock the pantry, would you bring those next week? And we will have a cart set out here when you come in and drop that into um, that cart and help stock their food pantry. We all know that times are hard with all this inflation and prices are so high and with Christmas coming and everything, people are just on a tighter budget this time of year. So if there's anything that we can do to help stock that food pantry for the neighborhood that, that we find ourselves in now, that would be wonderful. So thank you in advance for doing that. Also, next week is the children's program. So for you young moms who have kids in the children's program, if you're going to invite uh, dads or grandparents or aunts or uncles or friends to come and watch them, tell them they need to be here by 10.05, okay, because the program will start promptly, I think, at 10.10. Now, for those of you who have never seen this, who are new and have never seen this before, um, you don't want to miss it. Okay, it will only last maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so, and then we'll have our regular lecture. But for you um, moms who want to invite guests, have them be here by 10.05, okay? And then uh, they'll be blessed, and you guys will be blessed too. So, well, last week we, oh, I forgot, let me start my little recording. They just told me, and I've already forgotten. Last week, we talked about the fact that uh, God is not done with his plan for Israel yet. His stopwatch, so to speak, has just been put on pause until the time of the Gentiles or the church age has been fulfilled. And the church has been raptured. But during this last seven-year tribulation period, God will restart his stopwatch and complete his plan with Israel. And we discussed how the Antichrist could use and manipulate the chaos and the aftermath of the rapture of the church in order to rise to power, not by force, but with the promise of providing peace and safety. And he would trigger the start of this seven-year tribulation period by confirming a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. In chapter 6, we saw Jesus take the scroll out of his father's hand, which is the title deed to earth, and he started opening this seal, or this scroll, one seal at a time, which began the judgments on the world, which I believe won't begin until after the rapture of the church. Now, we had a diagram last week, I don't know if Laura has that, there it is, to show the way that these judgments are going to unfold. When the seventh seal of the scroll is open, 
it contains what's called the seven trumpet judgments. And then the seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bowl judgments. But all of these judgments are contained in this scroll that Jesus began to open in chapter 6. So this scroll contains all the wrath of God, the complete wrath of God, and is going to culminate with the return of Jesus to reclaim that which rightfully belongs to him. He doesn't just destroy the earth and everything in it with a blink of an eye. There is a progression in the opening of the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls of wrath. And each one is a measured judgment. And then there's a pause or an interlude in between each section. And just remember, as we're studying this, Jesus is in complete charge of the judgments and the timing of all of this. At no time does he lose control. Now, last week, as we studied um, the opening of these seals, we saw that the worldwide fear and the despair that's going to ensue as God's judgment begins falling on the earth. The opening of the sixth seal ended with this staggering scene of people all over the earth running for caves and into the mountains to try to hide from the face of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Remember we talked about that the fact that they would rather hide from Jesus in fear than run to him in faith and have their sins forgiven. And chapter 6 ended with the question, who can stand? So chapter 7, um, John is going to begin to show us the answer to this question. So are you ready to jump in to Revelation chapter 7? Okay, if you've got your Bible with you, let's turn to Revelation chapter 7. But before we begin, let's pray and ask the Lord to be our teacher, shall we? Father, we come this morning in expectation, knowing that you've promised where we gather in your name and we open your word, that you through your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. Because we can't understand anything in your word unless you teach it to us, Lord. And so we just ask that you would help set aside everything that's happened this morning or anything on our to-do list this afternoon. And just help us to quiet our thoughts and our hearts. Give us eager ears to hear what you have to teach each one of us this morning. And I just pray, Father, that you would just use me as your vessel, but may it be your message this morning. Holy Spirit, take the words of your scripture and drive it into our hearts so that we learn what you want us to learn. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So just a reminder, on this scroll that Jesus had in his hand... How many seals were on it? And how many seals have been opened so far? Okay. So we would expect that this chapter would begin with the opening of the seventh seal, right? But it doesn't. Instead, just when all hope seems lost, there is an interlude or a pause in judgment before Jesus opens the seventh seal. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad to have a little reprieve from all the depressing things that we studied about in chapter 6 last week, aren't you? 
Now, I mentioned at the beginning of our study uh, to keep an eye on where each of these scenes are taking place, whether it's on earth or in heaven, okay? And this is especially important in this chapter because John is going to see, have two visions or see two different scenes involving two different groups of people. So keep that in mind as, as we go through here. So if you've got your Bibles, let's read with me as we read Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Iskar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, as I said before, this chapter describes the first of three interludes in the book of Revelation. And it opens with four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And that simply means the four um, points on a compass, north, south, east, and west. So it's encompassing the whole earth. And they're holding back the winds of judgment which have been blowing across the earth. And just when these four angels were ready to unleash the next blow to the earth, a fifth angel cries out, wait, there's something that has to be done first. Look at verse 3. 
He says, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, if we were to skip ahead to chapter 8, where we read about the trumpet judgments, we would see that the next things to be harmed in God's planned judgment would be the earth and the trees and the sea. So, before these judgments fall, there's a pause or an interlude for a specific reason. 144,000 specially chosen people are going to be sealed with supernatural protection from God in order to serve him during the tribulation time. This same Holy Spirit who has sealed us as God's children will also seal this group as his children. Because all believers are sealed by God. But these believers are going to have some form of visible mark on their foreheads. We don't know what that is. We aren't told what that is. But they will have some visible mark on their foreheads. And they will be supernaturally protected by God during the tribulation. So that they can proclaim the word of God and the truth about his son Jesus. Now there's some debate on who these 144,000 are. I'm sure you've heard some groups today that claim that they are the 144,000. But in verse 4, we're specifically told that they all come from the tribe of Israel. And the fact that specific tribes of Israel are mentioned, as well as specific numbers from each tribe, leaves no doubt, in my opinion, that these 144,000 are all Jewish believers who after the rapture have finally understood and believed that Jesus is the Messiah. They've given their lives to him and they've been chosen and sealed by God for this special task. Now remember, God had originally chosen the nation of Israel to be his witnesses to the rest of the world. It was God's intent for Abraham and his descendants, who were the nation of Israel, to reveal his character and his power and his kindness in all the earth, and to be a nation that would point others toward his promised Redeemer, the Messiah. And it's through Israel, or the Jewish people, that we even know about the one true God. It's through Israel that we have the Word of God, the Bible. It's through Israel that the Messiah came. Israel didn't receive or recognize the Messiah, sadly, when he came to earth. So God put his plan on Israel, for Israel on pause for a time. But he hasn't forgotten about them. We talked about this last week. During the tribulation period, God will bring Israel back to the forefront of his plan. And in the future, he's going to graciously give Israel a second opportunity to be his witness nation. And this time, they won't fail. From the Jewish people will come the greatest missionary force that the world has ever known. Led by these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, Israel will ultimately fulfill God's plan by being a light to the rest of the world during the darkest hour of Earth's history. And they're going to point multitudes to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, some people believe that the promises to Israel have been revoked because of Israel's unfaithfulness, and they believe that they have been replaced by the church. But throughout Scripture, God has plainly stated his eternal plan for the people of Israel. 
And I want to take just a couple of minutes to, for us to look at a couple of these uh, scriptures to get a sense of how all this fits together. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but just listen. Um, in Genesis 12, God, God called Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, and he made several promises to him in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. God said, I will make you into a great nation. And that is the nation of Israel. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, Israel had no conditions that they had to fulfill for these promises to be kept. In Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15, after Abraham and Lot parted ways, if you remember, God told Abraham to look around at all the land that Abraham saw, and he told him that God, he would give this land to Abraham and his offspring forever. And he even told Abraham to go walk through the land because God was giving him this land. Now, if you would, turn with me for just a minute to Genesis 15. Abraham and Sarah still didn't have any children. And Abraham began to question God's promises to him and to be a great nation and uh, the land that God had promised him. And so if you look at uh, Genesis 15, 7, God told Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? God then tells Abraham to bring five animals, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. So Abraham did, and he cut them in two and arranged the halves of each animal opposite each other. And I think we have a slide, I think, of this. There we go. He, he arranged the animals in two and laid them opposite each other so that the blood formed this pool or this river in between the pieces that they had drained. Now, the Hebrew word used here in verse 18 describes this ritual, and the word is beret, which literally means cutting a covenant. A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties in which each ag agrees to uphold specific terms. And then the two parties would walk through this river of blood with the one establishing the terms of the covenant going first and then the one accepting the terms of the covenant going second. And this was a way of symbolizing or saying that may what was done to these animals be done to me if I failed to keep up my end of the covenant. In other words, the one who failed to keep the covenant paid for it with his life. Okay? This was a very common practice back then. Now look at verse 12. It says, as the sun was setting, Abraham was overcome by this deep sleep, or a trans-like state, and a dreadful darkness came over him. Well, no wonder, because Abraham found himself in the middle of a bloodbath ceremony, a covenant ceremony with the Almighty God. And it says, as the sun sets, Abraham is looking at all this blood, and he's terrified because he knew that there was no way that he or his descendants would ever be able to keep the terms of the covenant. 
And in verse 17, it says, As Abraham looked on in this deep-like sleep, God appeared in the darkness as a smoking fire pot, and as the greater party, he walked through the blood, or the blood between these animals first. And then the Lord did something that Abraham, I'm sure, was not expecting. Because at this point in the covenant ceremony, the lesser party, or in this case Abraham, was supposed to walk through the blood and vow to be treated like these animals and be cut up if he broke the covenant. But instead, God appeared in the form of a blazing torch and walked through the blood in Abraham's place, showing that he would bear responsibility and the penalties for both sides of the covenant agreement. So if Abraham and his descendants broke their side of the covenant, God would pay their penalty. He knew full well before the covenant was sealed that the descendants of Abraham would break the covenant. But God made the vow to take responsibility for both parties. And through this covenant demonstration, God promised Abraham that he would never go against his word. That what he promised, he would certainly fulfill. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. It was God who made the promises to Abraham, not Abraham who made the promises to God. God's promise to Abraham was unconditional. It didn't depend on Abraham at all because he was in a deep sleep at the time this covenant was made. He had no part in it. So it didn't depend on Abraham's faith or his faithfulness. It depended on the faithfulness of God. And verse 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land. And then he described the land. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made promises to King David, who was one of Abraham's descendants, that his throne would be established forever. And now, if you turn with me to Jeremiah 31, I know we're moving kind of fast, but I just want you to see how this all fits together. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 37. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now, The covenant that God made with Moses and the people of Israel was a conditional covenant, okay? So that's what he's talking about here. But the Lord says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He he who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Now listen to this. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. 
Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. So, can the heavens be measured, ladies? No. Can the foundations of the earth uh, below be searched out? You don't sound too sure. Can they? Okay. So what is God saying here? He's saying that he will never completely reject all the descendants of Israel because of what they've done, nor will they ever cease to be a nation before him. Now, why are these covenants and promises to Israel so important to us, anyway? Because God's reputation as a promise keeper is at stake. And so I hope taking a little time and looking at a few of these scriptures help us to understand and be confident in answering the question, would God ever go back on his promises to Israel? Numbers 23:19 says, God is not a human that he should lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And the answer to that is no. So if we can't trust God to keep his promises to Israel, how could we trust him to keep his promises to us? But God doesn't lie, we're told. He will do what he says he will do, and we can trust him completely. He is never going to revoke or replace his promise to Israel. Okay, so now let's get back to Revelation chapter 7. Some people have said that since the genealogical records were destroyed when the Romans invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 AD, that there's no way for people to know which tribes of Israel they're from, and therefore these 144,000 referred to in verses 4 through 8 cannot be Jews. Well, it's true that men may no longer be able to identify which tribes people come from, but God knows exactly which tribe every Jew is from. And he is the one responsible for choosing and sealing this group of people. I think he can handle it, don't you? Now, these 144,000 Jews are going to serve as faithful witnesses of Christ during the darkest period of Earth's history. God is going to miraculously keep them from harm and use them to fulfill Israel's Old Testament calling to be God's witnesses among the nations. This group of spirit-filled Jews will go throughout the world like 144,000 Apostle Pauls preaching the gospel. Now, can you imagine what kind of impact 144,000 Apostle Pauls would make? Multitudes are going to believe and will be saved during the tribulation time. Now, we've been comparing some verses in Revelation with Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, this gospel, of the kingdom of, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And here in Revelation chapter 7, John describes that this is exactly what's going to happen. Now doesn't this say something about the grace of God, that during the tribulation, when millions and millions have already rejected him and are rejecting him, and yet he is still reaching out to them. He doesn't want anybody to perish. Even when he's pouring out his wrath, 
God continues to try to draw people to himself. His arms are always open until the very end. What grace. What love. Now, in verse 9, John's view shifts from the 144,000 Jewish evangelists on earth to heaven, where he saw the results of their witness. John saw a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language, and they were standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding, a, holding palm branches in their hands and praising God the Father and the Son, the Lamb. Now notice the differences between these two groups. The group on earth is specifically numbered and is made up of all Jews. This group that John sees in heaven is unnumbered. There's so many that they can't be counted. And they come from every nation, tribe, and people group and language. And we don't have to guess who this multitude is because we're told plainly in verse 14 that they are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Now remember, at the beginning of the tribulation, there aren't any Christians left on earth. Okay, they've all been raptured. So this multitude of believers hadn't accepted the gospel before the church was raptured, but sometime after the rapture, they finally understood the truth and received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Many will become believers as a result of the ministry of these 144,000 Jewish witnesses and the two witnesses who we're going to learn about in Revelation chapter 11. But sadly, as soon as people come to Christ at that time, the world will put many of them to death. During this tribulation period, there's going to be a great revival. But at the same time, there's going to be a massacre of believers on a worldwide scale like we've never seen before in history. John sees these believers standing, on a, um, the, standing before the throne of heaven, wearing white robes, and verse 14 says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This multitude, which is so large that verse 9 tells us that it's uncountable, is made up of both Jews and Gentiles from every nation, every tribe, people, and language. They come out of the tribulation period saved and dressed in righteousness of Jesus because they trusted in the blood of the Lamb. So you see, God's way of salvation has always been the same in every time period by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus. By putting our faith in Jesus' death on the cross as the Lamb of God to pay for our sin and then his resurrection which proves that he is who he claimed to be. The blood of the Lamb is the only thing that can cleanse us from sin and make us as white as snow. You cannot stand in your own righteousness because as we've learned before, our own righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy God. But the good news is it, it doesn't matter how stained or dirty your sin is, when you trust Jesus' death and resurrection and trust in his blood on the cross to save you from God's penalty for your sin, Jesus takes your 
dirty, sinful rags and makes you white as snow by giving you his own robe of righteousness. This gospel isn't, isn't God asking you to do something. It's God telling you that he's already done something. The gospel isn't you giving something to God. It's God giving something to you. His gift of forgiveness and of sin and eternal life through Jesus. All you have to do is receive it. Now, I know some of you have probably seen this before, but we've got a little skit this morning just to demonstrate a little bit about what this looks like. So if I could have our little actresses come up today. And will you please show us all grace because the Holy Spirit didn't tell us we were going to do this until about 7 o'clock this morning. I hope not. (laughs) Watch All right, now I want to introduce you to somebody this morning. This is Donna. Now some of you may not know Donna, but every single one of us in this room today has something in common with Donna. Donna is a sinner, just like the rest of us are. Now that may shock some of you, but it's true. You see, from the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, every single human being born after that, was born in sin and have a sin nature or were born in our grave clothes. And there is nothing we can do to take off these grave clothes. Now, some of you may be sitting here thinking, wait a minute, she just called me a sinner. Now, I I think I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I try to live a good life and I try to do good things for people. But no matter how good you think you are or how many good things you do, the requirement God requires is perfection, perfect righteousness. Now, how many of you here this morning are perfect? I don't think so. So if we're really honest with ourselves, we all are selfish, aren't we? We're self-centered. And we're born that way because we have a sin nature. And let me just illustrate that by asking you what is probably one of the first words a child learns to say? No. Or mine, right? Because a child wants what he wants when he wants it. He wants his way. And if we're honest, every single one of us, even when we grow up, we like to have our own way, don't we? We don't like for people to tell us what we can and can't do. And so that is that sin nature we're all born with. And when we're born like that, just like Adam and Eve, we are separated from God. Now, we can try to do all kinds of things to dress up this sin nature. I mean, we can do good works. We can go to church. We can even go to Bible study or teach Bible study. But it doesn't matter what good works we try to dress up. What's God still see? We still have our sin nature, don't we? That's what God sees when he looks at us. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's who we are. But 
Here's the good news, ladies. God loved us so much that he couldn't bear the thought of us staying in our sin nature and being separated from him for all eternity. And so he came to earth himself in the form of a man, Jesus, who was sinless. He lived a perfect life. He was sinless to pay, in order to make a bridge for us to come back to the Father. Now, Jesus is not going to force us to come to him and let him take our sin. But as we're going through this life and we start hearing the gospel or we read the Bible or friends share things with us and we start learning and realize that we are a sinner and we need salvation, God starts to call to us through his Holy Spirit. And if we will willingly come to him and ask for his forgiveness... An amazing thing happens. Jesus takes our sin from us that we cannot take off ourselves. And an exchange takes place. Jesus actually takes our sin and gives us, in its place, his perfect righteousness. And then he takes our sin on himself... And when he died on the cross, he died with our sin in our place and paid the penalty, the death penalty that each one of us deserved in our place. So now when God looks at us, what does God see? He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. He doesn't see our sin. When Jesus died for that, he paid for our sin. All of our past sin, all of our present sin, And even all the sins that you might commit in the future, they are gone. He paid for them. And he rose from the dead to prove that God accepted his payment for your sin in full. So now when Jesus, or when God looks at us, he sees not our sinful nature anymore. He sees his son perfect righteousness. Now, it's not because of anything you did, is it? All you had to do is come to Jesus and simply receive his forgiveness and his salvation. God gave it to you freely. Now, in addition to these clean clothes that we have, God also seals us with his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in to live inside each one of us, to teach us how to walk. Because you know what? We've been living in our old sin nature our whole life. And so when we have these new clothes... They feel funny. They don't feel like we ha- they, that we are not used to them. And so we have to learn how to grow into these new clothes. And so he see- sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of us to teach us. But you know what? We are so set in our sinful patterns. We've had these habits built up over all these years in our thought patterns that sometimes when we get our eyes off of Jesus... Suddenly the world, we can get tempted by the world and we can get sucked back in to our old habits with our old friends. (laughs) And we start living like our old lives, right? (laughs) But does that strip us of our new clothes? Do we lose our salvation? Did Donna lose her salvation? No, she did not. But fellowship with the Lord has been broken. She's not... She's not lost her salvation, but she's lost her fellowship. 
And the Lord keeps calling her back and wooing her back. And suddenly when she realizes, oh, wait a minute, I've fallen. If Donna will go back to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness, he will forgive her again. And that fellowship is restored. Now, the next time that we're tempted, if we continue to do this over and over, and the temptations, and Donna gets her eyes off of Jesus again, and the temptations come up, if she will learn to say, wait a minute, no, you are not my master anymore, sin. The more you do that over and over, the easier it is to start to walk with the Lord, and you start developing new thinking patterns and new habits. And you start looking more and more like Jesus. And it's easier and easier to say no. And you know what, ladies? It's also easier when you have other friends who have been redeemed and have Jesus' perfect righteousness that come alongside you and we learn together rather than letting your old friends and the old world pull you back into your old habits. (laughs) Now, God will not force you to make this exchange. He will not force you to let him take your sin and give you his perfect righteousness. He leaves that choice completely up to you. But I want to tell you, one day, every single one of us who have ever been born throughout all time will stand before God in judgment. And we're either going to be standing before him in Jesus' perfect righteousness or in our sin nature. There's no in-between. Now, if we come in judgment before the Lord and we have Jesus' perfect righteousness, your, your penalty for your sin has already been paid for. Jesus has already paid for that. So you are free to enter into eternal life and live with Jesus forever. On the other hand, if you haven't accepted Jesus and you are still standing in your sin nature, The penalty for your sin has not been paid, and you have to pay it. And guess what's required? Perfect righteousness. We don't have that. And so guess what? You will have to pay that penalty, and you will be living in hell forever instead of with Jesus. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you the most important question that you will ever be asked in your life. Are you listening? Have you made this exchange? Have you come to Jesus in your sin and allowed him to take that from you and in exchange give you his perfect righteousness? Because if you haven't, this is what you're going to face. This is a picture of the gospel, okay? It just For me, I'm a visual learner. This helps me to see what the gospel is. So will you thank these ladies for me? Thank you. That's good. Now, this gospel message that is beautiful to us is offensive to most people. They don't like to hear that their sin is so great that it takes blood, the blood of Jesus, to clean them. But it's only through his blood that we find forgiveness, 
Verse 15 in Revelation 7 says that for this reason, this multitude before the throne of God, that, that it was for this reason that they were standing before the throne of God. So for what reason are they in heaven before the throne of God? Why are they able to stand there? Look back to verse 14. What does it say? Because they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They had made that exchange. See, people are in heaven not because of their family or because they go to church and their church membership or because they attend a Bible study or any other reason. The only people in heaven are those who washed their garments in the blood of Christ and made this exchange. And so John sees this multitude standing in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, which represents joy and celebration and victory. Now think back for just a minute. When was the last time a crowd of people stood with palm branches in their hands giving praise to Jesus as their king? Do you remember? When he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? Before he was crucified. On that day, almost 2,000 years ago, Israel was given the opportunity to receive her Messiah. But sadly, the leaders of Israel rejected him. But a day will come when Jesus is welcomed by a great number of both Jews and along with Gentiles from all over the world. And they will worship their Messiah with palm branches. And this time, the Messiah won't be rejected. And he won't be crucified. Instead, he's going to establish his kingdom forever. And verse 10 says, This great multitude cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, ladies, salvation was planned in the mind of God even before the foundation of the world. It was all his plan. The coming of his son Jesus, who died on the cross again so that we could have eternal life. And it's not something that man invented. Now contrast that with all the other religions of the world. All the other religions are man-made. And they all depend on working hard enough to make yourself good enough to be accepted by God. And that is impossible. We can never make ourselves good enough to be accepted by God. We just saw there is only one way. Salvation comes only from God by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so these tribulation saints in heaven cry out in praise, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who made it possible through his death and resurrection. Now, before they arrive in heaven, these tribulation saints are going to face hunger and thirst and death from starvation and poison water and burn by the blazing sun and suffocation by scorching heat. Maybe caused by a nuclear uh, war. But once they arrive in heaven, God promises in verse 16 that never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun or scorching heat won't beat down on them. Instead, the lamb 
who is at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will lead them to springs of living water. Notice here that Jesus is both the lamb and the shepherd. These tribulation saints will face incredibly harsh living conditions, terrorizing circumstances, and the loss of loved ones. They're going to have plenty of reasons to have tears on earth. But when they get to heaven, God will tenderly wipe away every tear from their eyes. Because God is not only a sovereign judge, but also a compassionate, loving parent to his children. So as we come to the end of chapter 7, and this wonderful interlude between the first six seals and the seventh, which is to come, again, the most important question this morning is, have you washed in the blood of the Lamb and been sealed with his Holy Spirit? See, the sight of Jesus dying in our place forces us to face the sin and the evil that's in our own hearts. Our sin put Jesus on that cross, ladies. My sin put him there. Your sin put him there. And if the grace of God demonstrated on the cross doesn't humble us, then God's judgment will have to humble us. And this same God who today offers grace and forgiveness to all people must someday judge the sin and the rebellion of those who reject his offer and his love and his offer for forgiveness. All people who have refused his offer of grace are going to face these horrifying events in the tribulation. But if we belong to the Lord, if we have made that exchange before that time, we are not going to be a part of this scene. So if you haven't already chosen to receive Jesus as your Savior, you face a choice right now this morning. You're either going to choose to receive him or reject him. There is no neutral with Jesus. And if you don't choose to receive him, then you are rejecting him. Now, it doesn't matter who you are, or what you've done, God can save you. God has plenty of grace. Now, you might be thinking, well, Teresa, you don't really know what all I've done. You might be thinking you're a dirty, ugly, hopeless sinner. But guess what, ladies? That's the only kind he saves. We're all that, okay? Right now, you have the opportunity to have your sins, no matter how dirty or ugly, washed away in the blood of the Lamb. And you can stand completely forgiven before God as his child. All you have to do is receive his gift. And you can do that right where you're sitting. All you have to do is talk to him in your heart and just tell him that you're sorry that You've been living in your sin and you didn't realize you were going your own way instead of going his way. Just talk to him in your heart, knowing that he's in heaven right now listening to you. And for those of us who have received Christ, 
we need to be reminded that just like the 40, 144,000 will be God's witnesses during the future tribulation period, God has called us to be his witnesses of Christ today as he continues to try to draw people to himself. So let's light, let our lights shine, ladies, because time is short. Time is running out, and there are a lot of people that we even know in our families, in our neighborhoods. There are people all around us who do not know Jesus yet. So let's get about our Father's business. Let's close in prayer. Father, once again, we just thank you and praise you for your gift of your Son who came and paid the penalty in our place for our sin so that we might be able to spend eternity in heaven with you, forgiven, washed, and in clean white robes. And Father, if there's one woman here this morning who hasn't made that exchange, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would move in her heart right now. Don't let Satan... Tell her lies that she's beyond savable. Or tell her lies that she has time. She doesn't have to make the decision right now. None of us know how much time we have. And Father, I just pray as we leave here today, you will take your word that we've studied this morning and Teach each one of us what you want us to know. You've already pricked our hearts about something this morning. Don't let us leave here and get caught up in our shopping lists or in our Christmas to-do lists and be all about the things of the season and miss the person and the reason of the season. Jesus, may you be lifted high and glorified in our lives, the way we live them each day, not in just our words, but the way we live. May you be pleased and glorified. May our light shine and draw more into your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, ladies. We'll see you next week. Don't forget the children's program.